Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this on Saturday, January 27th, 2024. You're listening to this for the first time on Sunday, January 28th, 2024, and the rebroadcast will air on Monday, January the 29th at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. My name is Jasmine, and I'm on the line with my co-host, Reese. How you doing, Reese? I'm doing well this week. Can't complain. How about you? You know what I always say? I am hanging in there. So. Hanging in there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I know like my grandmother says, you know, it's like you're, you can't complain, but if you could, it wouldn't do any good anyhow. So. I mean, that's right. Try to focus on the good. Leave the bad. Yeah, one day Just at a time. Say that again. And the whiz, the good witch, she used to say, uh, count your blessings, cut your losses, and ease on down the road. Oh, wow. Okay. I got to rewatch that. It's been a minute. And by a minute, I mean years. That's right. All right. right. So for our local news story, we'll be talking about um, a nurse, a New York nurse who was giving out um wasn't giving children vaccines but was giving them pellets you said yep okay good lord for the national news we'll be talking about um a showdown between um republican governors and the federal government over the texas mexico border for world news um janet will be joining in later to give an update about um israel's war against um, palestinians in gaza and the um, International Court of Justice case that uh, South Africa has brought against Israel, uh, charging them with genocide. And for the good news, we'll be talking about the White House um, issuing pardons for cannabis possession because the drug might change classes. Um, So Reese, can you go ahead with the local news story? Absolutely. So this article is from the New York Times. Um, The title of the article is Long Island Midwife Gave Pellets Instead of Vaccines to 1,500 Children. And the author of this is Joseph Goldstein. A Long Island midwife falsified vaccine records for some 1,500 school-aged children, according to New York State's Department of Health, which on Wednesday announced it had fined her $300,000. The authorities said the scheme began at the start of the 2019-20 year, school year, after measles epidemic had led New York to end religious exemptions for immunizations. The new rules meant that about 26,000 children who had previously been exempted needed to get vaccinated to return to school that fall. But instead of administering the required vaccines, the midwife, Jeanette Breen of Baldwin, New York, gave thousands of homeopathic oral pallets to school-aged children and then falsified their immunization records, according to authorities. The oral pellets in question were marketed as an alternative to vaccination, but were not authorized or approved by the federal government as a vaccine against any disease. Ms. Green administered them as a substitute for vaccinations against hepatitis, 
diphtheria, polio, measles, and other diseases, according to authorities. The children who received the pellets attend hundreds of different schools. The schools have been instructed to inform their parents that their children cannot return until they provide proof of vaccination. While most of the children with falsified records were on Long Island, many were from New York City and some were from other parts of the state, including Erie County. Misrepresenting or falsifying vaccine records puts lives at jeopardy and undermines the system that exists to protect public health, the state health commissioner, Dr. James McDonald said. It was not immediately known if the scheme resulted in any illness or spread of disease. The authority said it had appeared that many of the parents knew their children were not being vaccinated. The scheme suggests that the persons in parental relation to the affected children sought out and paid bring related to their children's immunizations. A spokeswoman for the health department, Erin Clary, wrote in an email. The health department said that Ms. Breen had already paid 150000 of the $300,000 penalty and that the remainder of the fine would be suspended if she abided by certain terms, including a prohibition on administering vaccine, vaccines or participating in any schemes to misrepresent, misrepresent vaccination records. Ms. Breen did not respond to messages requesting comment. In a 2019 deposition, she said she had been running a midwifery practice in Baldwin for about 30 years and had graduated from Columbia University School of Nursing in 1984 with a master's degree. The deposition involved a case regarding whether a pregnant employee at a hospital should receive an exemption from a mandatory flu shot policy. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention recommends that pregnant women receive flu shots, but Ms. Breen expressed skepticism about the safety and benefits for pregnant women. Well. A doctor doesn't always know best, she said. So that is the end of the article. <laughs> Yo, these people out here is wild. <laughs> so what you think about this? You already know what I think because I was saying it before we were recording. I was like, a oh, fine. I mean, I'm not a fan. Like, I don't, I don't think that the criminal justice system is good. It hasn't solved anything, but a fine isn't enough like there has to be something stronger than that because that's essentially a slap on the wrist because you're putting other people at risk and you're lying you know it's like my thing is look if you're gonna be so you're anti-vaccine you're anti the then you know what you stand on that stand on that 10 toes down and you take the consequence which means they can't be in a public school with everybody else there's going to be restrictions on where they can go doing X, Y, Z. But to go so far as to falsify it and lie, you're making everyone else unsafe because of your belief. And that's, I don't agree with that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. The fact that these parents paid her for doing this shows you how much many more people um, are involved in the anti-vax movement. The fact that she was able to pay half of that already, probably from the money that she got paid for doing it, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think a fine is, is enough for what she's done. I think it's complicated for them to charge all the people involved. So this is the way they're handling it. But it goes to show, um, you know, just where the power lies, because this is the type of shit that can cause like a whole uh, epidemic in the neighborhood at a school in a certain region of the country and they, it's like a slap on the wrist with this fine they're giving her um, 
and she's just a midwife, you know, not to discredit her or anything like that, but I imagine that a lot of the people that were involved in this may have been babies that she brought into the world. So she had a network and a community already. This is, and you know what, it's a shame because I feel like I do believe that, you know, there's a way to, like, you can have tradition, like traditional medicine or like what you know from a hospital or whatever, but also natural remedies and knowing about herbs and th like, I think that there's a lot of value in that and like Chinese medicine and stuff like that. You know, there's ways that people have been having babies, taking care of illnesses, doing different things that go back thousands of years. I understand that. But I feel like people like this give that whole branch of like holistic or natural thing a bad name because that's not how you go about it. You know, and like yeah. the lives are at stake. Like measles cases are out of control now in the U.S. There's there's several outbreaks right now and the U.K. had to declare like a national incident type because they've had they have thousands of cases now of this highly contagious illness that can cause your brain to swell messes up your whole immune system it's extremely contagious very dangerous for newborns especially it just it makes me so mad like this is just <sighs> yeah yeah it's tough man and there she she wasn't working alone you know um it, it just goes to show also like how much non-control there really is over things like this you know this is just one woman that was found out. I'm sure there was others within the network that was doing the same thing. Um, and I agree with you. Like, it's okay to have these exemptions if that's the way you feel, but they do need to at least have the kids be within the schools of other kids that are like that. And yes, yeah, fucked up. That shit is segregated like that, but that's the way of the world. We should be able to choose our communities that we want to be a part of if we can. And if that's the way you choose, then say the fuck away from us. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> he he thing. hello? You know, it's it's crazy. It's it's really it's sad because like also the child doesn't have a choice in that. You know, they right. it's kids that get really ill. There's children that aren't here anymore, literally, because their parents were so wrapped up in this. Well, I'm not gonna give them medicine. I'm not gonna get them that. And now the child is gone. That wasn't their choice. Yeah. It's just I don't know. I talk talk about it too much, and I get worked up. Yeah, well, I hope, I hope there's something else, you know, she faces some other type of charges for what she's done. Um, if it's just a finding that she can't do it no more. I mean, so many people will be affected, but, you know, it's like one of those crimes that you really can't get a handle on. It is what it is at this point. And if those parents, let's hope that those parents don't find another person to do the same damn thing. Exactly. Because if they was a part of the scheme the first time, they're going to do it again. Exactly. All right, so for our first musical break, this is Paul Simon with Still Crazy After All These Years. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. I met my old lover on the street last night. She seemed so glad to see me. I just smiled. We talked about some old times And we drank ourselves some beers Still crazy after all these years Whoa. 
Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our national news story, this is um, sort of a continuation of what uh, we discussed with Matthew last week about um, a standoff between the Texas state government and the federal government over the border. Uh, This information comes from Politico. Uh, this article was written by Olivia Alifriz on the 25th of January of this year. Uh, and I'll also have some information at the end uh, from Slate uh, in an article written by Mark Joseph Stern. Uh, so the first article is GOP governors show support for Texas and border standoff. 
Republican governors are rallying behind Texas Governor Greg Abbott amid court battles with the federal government over the state's border policy. A coalition of 24 Republican governors released a joint statement Thursday in support of Abbott's efforts to exercise what he claims in tex is Texas's constitutional right to self-defense. The quote reads, we stand in solidarity with our fellow governor, Greg Abbott, and the state of Texas in utilizing every tool and strategy, including razor wire fences, to secure the border, read the statement, signed by almost every Republican governor. This show of support comes as Texas has mobilized considerable resources at the U.S.-Mexico border, such as the Texas National Guard and state troopers, in an approach that has often clashed with the operations of the Federal Border Patrol. This ongoing standoff between Texas and the federal government has unfolded through a series of legal and political challenges. The state is currently embroiled in court battles over its use of razor wire and floating buoys at the border, and the controversy has fueled conflicts surrounding immigration legislation in Congress. Abbott has justified these actions by accusing President Joe Biden and his administration of failing to enforce existing immigration laws, arguing that his actions are constitutionally protected. The governor's joint statement echoed Abbott's position, asserting, because the Biden administration has abdicated its constitutional compact duties to the states, Texas has every legal justification to protect the sovereignty of our states and our nation. Their support was offered in part because the Biden administration is refusing to enforce immigration laws already on the books and is illegally allowing mass mass parole across America of migrants who entered our country illegally, the statement said. Um, and next, I'm just going to read a small piece of um, an article written in Slate by Mark Joseph Stern called GOP Governors Invoke the Confederate Theory of Secession to Justify Border Violations. Um, I'm not, I'm just going to read a bit of it, but in it, he's explaining the parallels between this statement and all these governors coming together and when the Southern states decided to secede from the Union uh, before the Civil War, at the beginning of the United States Civil War. He writes, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, joined by 25 other GOP governors, now argues that the Biden administration has violated the federal government's quote-unquote compact with the states, an abdication that justifies state usurpation of federal authority at the border. This language embraces the Confederacy's conception of the Constitution as a mere compact that states may exit when they feel it has been broken. Uh, and if you're not aware, uh, one of the definitions of compact, C-O-M-P-A-C-T, is an agreement or covenant between two or more parties. Uh, like, I didn't know that meaning before. It's dangerous rhetoric that transcends partisan grandstanding. And as before, it's being used to legitimize both nullification and dehumanization. Consider the very first line of a statement Abbott issued on Wednesday that was subsequently backed by the other Republicans, which states, the federal government has broken the compact between the United States and the states. 
That language is strikingly similar to the very first line of the secession ordinances passed by slave states when they purported to leave the Union. Most of these ordinances began with a declaration that the states sought to quote-unquote dissolve the Union that was united under the compact known as the Constitution. It was this compact, not national sovereignty, but a contract among states and the federal government that constituted the United States of America. The secession ordinances asserted that the federal government and the president especially owed certain constitutional duties to the states under this contract. It had allegedly abdicated the, those duties by threatening to restrict slavery and disrespecting the rights of Southern states in other ways inextricably linked to the maintenance of white supremacy. Any state these ordinances concluded was therefore entitled to depart the Union and become quote-unquote free and independent once more. So yeah, I mean, I mentioned um, being concerned about the direction that this standoff was headed last week because it really does seem like deliberate escalation trying to ramp, ramp things up to like a civil war type situation um had you been following this reese or what are, what are your thoughts on these developments i haven't been following this but this is really important because i can see the south coming together as a union especially now in this time before this election um to challenge all types of things in the constitution i mean it seems like they've been preparing themselves for that um, and it's by no stretch of the imagination, strategic, a strategic move. Um, you know the country's divided is very obvious where the division lies, and I'm sure that it's going to rear its ugly head again this year for the elections. So these are the strategic ways in which that, that side does things so that they can have more power. So, um, yeah, this is definitely something to watch because they're just going to lead the path. They're just going to be the example of what other states would want to do um, if they got, were so inclined to join Texas um, in their misallegiance to the United States. So this is important stuff to pay attention to. Yeah, and like from what I understand, um, it seems like Biden has released a statement, like essentially, <laughs> instead of like, going against what this group is saying it's kind of like trying to give in and give them what they want by you know creating more strict rules at the border but i think that whenever the attempt is made by democrats to kind of quote unquote democrats to be like oh we're going to go further to the right to try to appease these people I don't think it ever works because like at the end of the day, like the, that voter base is always going to go with the more extreme option anyway. So it doesn't really make sense. Not, not only do I think it's cruel and inhumane to go along with what um, these Republican states are doing, Republican led states are doing. It's also just not going to work out the way I think Biden and his camp seem to think that it will. Like, you're not going to convince people that are on that side to come over to your more moderate side by trying to imitate them but not go as far. You know, it's, I don't know. It's definitely frightening to me because I don't, 
I don't know what I would do. Like if things really came to that and I don't think that it's impossible for it to come to that type of escalation if you have people saying they're gonna send troops and all of that across like National Guards troops like to other states. Like I, I don't know. I don't know. Like, do you ever think about what would happen or what you would do if things did get to that point where it was like armed conflict between the states? No, I've actually never even thought about that. Not as scary that I haven't, to be honest, the way things felt. But um, more than likely, you know, I would obviously try to jump ship if there was a way for me to leave these United States, which I think about that a lot more every day. Um, cause I would never want to see what that America would look like. I think a lot of people think that it would be more democratic and equal and it really won't, you know, it'll, it's truth will air its ugly head and be very, very evident. Um, and it just be, it won't be safe. Won't be safe at all. So many states are concealing carry states. You know, it's obvious if you have a certain way of thinking where you should be. And those people galvanize, they come together for, for reasons over our heads, reasons that we don't understand. And you're about to see a lot more that come through when things like this happen. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely something I do think about, especially, you know, I do a lot of reading and, you know, there's many people that are experts when it comes to like far right extremism and you know, these people that have a mentality of, you know, white supremacists in general that have this feeling of entitlement to having things be their way or the highway and wanting to yeah. take over federal agencies and like the, those Bundy Ranch people that uh, Matthew was talking about last week is really not a game and it's not a joke. And like you said, they have like they come together, they rile each other up. And it's, it's scary to think about it. Like, I think I would probably stay put, you know, like I have all of my family is here. Like I would be really, I wouldn't want to completely leave, you know, like I know I have relatives that could not go anywhere and it would stress me out to try to go someplace and not know if they're safe or not. But I don't know, I guess it is good to start making a plan you know, a, a lot of people in the past, when these things happen, they thought that it would never happen. And then they get caught up in the middle. So yeah. I don't know. Be alert, be alert, be thinking about these things, try to make a plan for yourself and, you know, know what's happening locally and over, you know, nationally, because it's all the worst people are paying very close attention, unfortunately. Exactly. All right, so you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our next musical break, this is Erica Badu with Window Seat. We'll be right back. Oh. 
Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at 
radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our world news story, here's Janet. All right, so I'm going to start with an update on the war in Gaza, just some figures that are still being posted and reported by Al Jazeera. Um, Since the initial attack on October 7th um, by Hamas against Israel and the initiated retaliation efforts of Israel against the Palestinians in Gaza, approximately 26,000 Gazans have been killed, 64,000 have been injured, and 8,000 are missing. Approximately 12 Gazans die every hour. And it's important to keep in mind with these figures that 40% of deaths, injuries, and missing persons are children. Um, In addition to the loss of life, more than half of Gazan homes have been destroyed, not to mention hundreds of hospitals, education facilities, and places of worship. Um, The World Health Organization reports that 93% of the population in Gaza is currently facing crisis levels of hunger. And 1.7 million Palestinians are presently displaced from their homes. Um, On the Israeli side, there are approximately 100 to 120 Israeli hostages that still remain alive and in captivity. Um, The number at this point is not quite certain because it's thought that um, possibly 20 people have been either killed or died um, as hostages. So these overall horrific figures um, and many others were presented recently by the country of South Africa in a case that they presented before the International Court of Justice. Um, And in their case, they were arguing that these conditions um, render Israel guilty of committing acts of genocide against the Palestinians in Gaza in violation of the original Geneva Convention. Um, So I do want to spend a little bit of time just giving a brief summary of this court case that South Africa presented. But before I jump into it, I just wanted to give a a really quick history of the word genocide. It was originally coined in 1944 by a Polish lawyer named Raphael Lemkin. So his definition of genocide, which became part of the Geneva Convention's definition of genocide in 1949, is the following. Um, Genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. A, killing members of the group. B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And E, 
forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And so on Friday, January 26, when the South African, the country of South Africa presented their case before the UN Court of Justice, they actually cited um, A, B, C, and D, all of these measures except for transferring children of the group to another as um, something that Israel is actively committing against the Palestinians in Gaza. Um, so they called upon the court to um, basically declare that that was in fact happening um, in violation of, of international law. That was the first part of their appeal. And secondly, they called for the UN to demand from Israel a ceasefire to demand that there be an end to the efforts of Israel that are calculated to bring about physical destruction to the Palestinian people. They also demanded that um, the Israeli government take in their own hands um, to ensure that the persons committing these genocidal acts would be punished um, by a competent national or international tribunal. And as part of that, to protect any evidence that would be collected related to accusations of genocide. Um, they also, South Africa also demanded of Israel that they allow obligations of reparation, namely that the Palestinian victims be able to return safely home. And um, Finally, that the Israeli government would submit a report and, and of what actions they were taking to prevent genocide to this international court. So that was what South Africa presented. And then just this last Friday, um, so yesterday, January 26, the court issued a statement um, in response to this case. And the court basically agreed with South Africa that the case be, that they brought forward was valid, meaning that some of the evidence they pre presented before the court fell into the category of genocide law. Um, and that's in counter to the Israelis' opinion that this would instead um, be considered basically something of humanitarian law outside of specifically genocide. So the court agreed with them on that. And they also agreed that um, the Israeli government needs to do everything in their power to avoid the various aspects of genocide that are threatening the Palestinian people right now. But what they didn't do is to call for a ceasefire as demanded by South Africa. Um, they did demand that Israel present in one month's time um, a document showing what had been done to prevent acts of genocide that are currently being committed. And the court really did um, include a lot of information, just like I said at the outset, facts and figures about how a huge percentage of the population has been displaced, 
children are dying and how this blockade of access to basic resources like food and water is really bringing Israel into the territory of genocide. So I thought it was important um, in today's time period to be thinking about this term that was defined and established as international law in the wake of the horrific world wars that resulted in millions of civilian deaths and to be thinking of whether we as kind of ordinary people in the 21st century um, should be thinking of stopping a genocide right now that could be happening in Palestine. Jasmine, any thoughts on, on the latest updates of this case? Um, I think that it's really, it makes me feel kind of hopeless, honestly, to see, or not hopeless isn't the right word, but when I think about like all these rules and laws and procedures, and you can see very clearly that they don't apply to everyone. Um, because I think the only people at this point, like, I'm not even sure what the, the enforcement mechanism would be if uh, this court did come out and just say outright that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians, specifically in Gaza. But, you know, what is there? It just doesn't really seem like there's a whole lot of teeth behind making the action stop. And I think the only people who have actually been, you know, consider war criminals and face any sort of punishment have been people on the African continent, like black African leaders, even though there's plenty of leaders who are outside of the continent of Africa who would fit the law and the definition, but it doesn't happen. You know, it's, I just, yeah. I don't know. It's like, it's very sad. And, you know, I, I, we'd be remiss not to mention that today is Holocaust Remembrance Day, the day that we're recording this. And, exactly. you know, I just really want, you know, these things should, these types of things like collective punishment, people being forced from their homes, people being starved, bombed, you know, removed from jobs, like these things should not be happening to any group of people because of their religion, their ethnicity, where they were born. You know, it was horrific when it happened during the Holocaust. It was horrific when it happened before the Holocaust took place to other peoples, like um, in what's now Namibia, like the Herero people in Africa who were, you know, the victims of the first genocide of the 20th century in like 1904 to 1908, I believe, you know, being driven to the desert, starved, put in what are considered concentration camps, forced to work as slaves you know, collectively punished for standing up against, like, a colonial force, like, this, it's something that has been happening to, you know, people who are Jews, to various African peoples, there's an ongoing genocide against the native peoples of the Americas that, you know, has been going on for hundreds of years, it shouldn't happen to anyone, it's not okay for it to happen to any group that's on this earth. And it's really scary that we can all see it happening right now. And it doesn't seem like there's enough. The right people are not in a place to actually make it stop. It's just like a lot of strongly worded statements and people protesting, but the, the deaths keep piling up. Yeah, exactly. And 
you know, this isn't even the verdict of the case. This, this stage of it was merely to establish that South Africa, um, the, I think, what was the word that they used? That it was plausible. The, right. That the genocide was happening. The legal term was that this was a plausible case to be considered. So it's, you know, and we've, I mean, on a maybe arguably lesser scale, but still important, we've seen this with, you know, the trials of Trump, where the law takes so long to catch up with the crime that so many crimes are being committed in the meantime, or the implications of the first crime are playing out before the law can catch up and have a reaction to it. And I think you're exactly right that with the UN at this state, you know, they really don't have teeth. They don't have some, you know, it's, I think it's still important that this case was held. I think it's important that the, the terms were defined and that the arguments were made and that the evidence was collected internationally before the public. But on the other hand, as, as the statistic says, every hour, 12 Palestinians die. So how many more will die before there is a full verdict of this and action is truly taken? I will bring up that there was some possibly hopeful news that the U.S. is now helping. This just came out um, while I was preparing for this segment that the U.S. is helping to coordinate a possible two-month ceasefire that they hope will make time to um, bring in the desperately needed humanitarian aid. But at the same time, the U.S. Um, and several other nations have revoked some of their United Nations funding due to a case of 12 individuals who have been um, fired for possibly being involved in the Hamas attack on Israel. So that's obviously a very negative thing, but the reaction of the US and several Western countries, like I think it was Britain and Australia and Canada to take funds away from the UN ends up just hurting more civilians. Um, I don't see how that's a good reaction to this UN kind of situation. So hopeful, but not hopeful at the same time. Yeah, and it's like, I think, you know, these one month, two months, and then you're going to start back up again, you know, people are being killed now, like they're, they're being killed by Israel, and dying horrible deaths, and there's not just from bombs, but of illness, of starvation, not having clean water, it has to stop, like, I don't know what it's going to take for it to stop, but you know, I've been contacting my reps saying, you know, I want them to support a ceasefire, but this is really, I can't believe we're at a hundred and what, 12, 13 days of this. Yeah. And just the, I mean, the loss of life itself and children and adults, civilians is awful. But thinking about rebuilding too, their homes are destroyed. Their infrastructure is destroyed. Universities Every, gone. It's Hospitals gone. And the crisis will of the survivors will continue because now they have literally no homes to return to. And, you know, Netanyahu continues to have a very 
strong stance on not having any sympathy for these people, not wanting to back off, being, uh, you know, pushing away from negotiations, pushing away from the establishment of an independent Palestinian state that would finally give them some autonomy and human rights. And I don't, I don't know. It's, and, and on another level, the, it said that most of the um, participants in the Israeli military are 18 and 18 to 25 year olds. You know, these are people who are acting on the orders of their government, committing atrocities, and who will also be damaged by what they've done in this situation. You know, I, I, I can't see any, any good side to this effort. I, I really hope that the ceasefire will go through and that there will be another exchange and that things can start to be rebuilt. But I'm, I'm just not, I'm not overly hopeful of that. Yes, it's, I mean, it's difficult to be, um, but we can hope and we can continue to, you know, use our voices to try to get, you know, we allegedly are in a democracy sometimes, you know, I often am very critical of believing that, but, you know, these people in power, their power is supposed to come from us. And if we don't like what they're doing, like they're supposed to listen to what we say. And I don't think most of us really want for this to continue either. So why is our tax dollars going to it? So. All right. Well, thank you for that. And we are going to move on to Reese with the good news. So I got this story off the Good News Network. Um, and the title is White House Issues Unprecedented Pardons After FDA Finds Cannabis to Be More Like Tylenol Than Heroin. The author is Andy Corley. On Friday, January 20th, the federal government waved the white flag on the war on drugs as it regards to can the cannabis plant. President Biden issued presidential pardons to any American or lawful permanent resident who has a conviction of cannabis possession on their record. At the same time, he ordered the Department of Health and Human Services to compile a case for the reclassifying of cannabis from Schedule One drugs such as heroin and cocaine to Schedule Three drug like testosterone and fortified Tylenol. Decades of advocacy have created a national picture where 38 states have legalized cannabis for medicinal use and 24 states, two territories in DC have legalized cannabis for recreational use. The United States FDA controlled substance staff writes in the HHS report that their agency is recommending the rescheduling of cannabis as it meets all three criteria for doing so, namely a lower potential for abuse compared to schedule two substances and existing and established medical use and a lower psychophysical dependency potential. The marijuana withdrawal syndrome appears to be relatively mild compared to the withdrawal syndrome associated with alcohol, which can include more serious symptoms such as agitation, paranoia, seizures, and even death, writes the FDA, which added that while there, may, there are many proven claims about the medicinal use of cannabis, there is credible scientific evidence for its use in reducing the side effects of chemotherapy. Sweeping changes would take place in such if such a rescheduling would occur, which will ultimately be decided by the Drug Enforcement Agency. The already multi-billion dollar cannabis industry would benefit from a much safer banking and tax environment, 
hundreds of thousands of people, particularly young adults, wouldn't be turned into criminals by choosing to use a largely harmless substance for recreation. And people, particularly veterans, who live in states where recreation and medicinal cannabis is not available, could obtain it safely. Related to presidential pardon, pardon, Biden announced the war on drugs had failed and that it was time to right these wrongs. Anyone who has a possession charge of cannabis, which may be impeding employment or housing opportunities, can apply for a certificate that shows they have been pardoned and the conviction is off their record. Criminal records for marijuana use and possession have imposed needless barriers to employment, housing, and educational opportunities. Too many lives have been unpended, appended because of the failed approach to marijuana. It's time to right these wrongs, Biden said. This does not apply to the use imprisoned or convicted of selling cannabis. The Gallup poll conducted in October 23 found that 70% of Americans believe cannabis should be completely legalized in all its forms. So that is the article, um, which is, I think, definitely a step into the future and also just like a much needed shift towards the attitude of cannabis. Um, and, you know, I think that over the years, all of the advocacy that's been done is finally starting to result in people taking a better look at the drug itself and the way people have been prosecuted for it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a step. It could be a bigger step because, you know, it, it kind of doesn't make sense to me that people would be pardoned for possession, but then if you're selling it, like, you're still going to have these problems. But it's definitely something for the people that are affected, you know, so I'm happy that they can get rid of this mark on their record. And, yeah, we really got to... As And as I say this as someone who does drink, it's like alcohol is like the real villain, <laughs> and but it's kind of allowed to just sort of, you know, because it's such a cultural norm and it's so ingrained in like what Western culture to drink, even yeah. though like by, by numbers and also by physical effects on your body and your brain, like it's a, it's probably the deadliest drug largely because it's like, anyone can have it you know it's it affects way yeah. more people than some of these narcotics that are illegal i hope that those who have convictions of selling at least if the drug is classified differently maybe that will change the terms of that conviction you know yeah they need to let them out boy the work to be done but it's still something right now there's something right now you know and it's like you got people getting convicted or charged with everything under the sun but they out here running for damn president but you sold some weed and your life is completely derailed like that don't make any kind of sense exactly you've been listening to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn stay tuned for more community-based brooklyn radio and for the last song of the day this is radiohead with high and dry have a good week, everybody. Bye. Two jumps in a week, but you think that's pretty clever. Yeah.
Yeah. 